Lord, we are sinful, frail, distracted creatures. God, we want to focus our hearts and our minds and our affections on you this morning, on your Son, on the great promises that he has given us. So, Lord, help us to do that. Send your Spirit this morning in a special way. Hover over your word, apply it to our hearts. Remove the scales from our eyes this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. We will be in Philippians chapter 3. Philippians chapter 3 this morning. <clears throat> the title of this morning's sermon is Laboring in Hope of a Glorious Resurrection. Laboring in Hope of a Glorious Resurrection. That title is actually adapted from an epitaph. Uh, if, you know what an, if you don't know what an epitaph is, an epitaph is an inscription on a tombstone. So if you go to a cemetery, you look at tombstones, they'll have a person's name, dates, and then maybe some sort of inscription or message. That's an epitaph. Uh, being a genealogist, someone who gets a lot of joy out of researching my family's history, I spend an odd amount of time in graveyards, which sounds really strange now that I say that out loud. Uh, getting information from headstones, finding where ancestors are buried. A lot of times I'll clean the headstones of my ancestors so that that information is visible for decades to come. It may be strange, but I really enjoy those visits to cemeteries. Uh, they're solemn. I mean, there's not usually anyone else there. And I think of the passage in Ecclesiastes, most times that I show up at a cemetery, it's better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting. For this is the end of all mankind, and the living will lay it to heart. Another thing that I find interesting on these trips are these epitaphs, these inscriptions that you read. Some are sweet, some are hopeful, some are a little bit dark. Um, one ancestor's tombstone reads, Behold and see all that stand by, as you are now, so once was I. As I am now, so you must be. All caps, prepare for death and follow me. That'll give you chills. Uh, another of my ancestors' headstones reads thus, and this is one of my favorites, it's just beautiful. May the resurrection find thee on the bosom of thy God. That's just lovely. Love that. But the one that I adapted for today's sermon title, it's not common, but I've seen it more than once, just simply says of the deceased, resting in hope of a glorious resurrection. Isn't that sweet? If you have loved ones that knew Christ that have gone before, that's true of them. Resting in hope of a glorious resurrection. Well, this morning's text is spilling over with hope of a glorious resurrection. However, Paul is not emphasizing this morning resting in that hope. He's talking to those who are still in the land of the living, still have work to do. Paul is going to tell us about the labor, the pressing on, the striving, the reaching that he is engaging in to reach that goal of a glorious resurrection. 
So I want us to read this morning's text. We're going to be in Philippians chapter 3. I want us to read the beginning of the chapter through our text because they're connected. Finally, my brothers, verse 1, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble for me and is safe for you. Look out for the dogs. Look out for evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh, though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ. The righteousness from God that depends on faith. That I may know him and the power of his resurrection, and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Here's our text. Not that I have already obtained this, or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own, because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do Forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those of us who are mature think this way. And if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Only let us hold true to what we have attained. So in the previous two sermons on this chapter that covered those first verses, 1 through 11, it's been a little bit, so I want to take a moment to refresh your memory. We took two sermons to deal with verses 1 through 11. The first sermon focused on aspects of this passage that are specific to Paul. Okay, Uh, His personal history in Judaism. His reliance on those things in his past for security and hope in his future. Uh, The second sermon focused on elements of this passage that were universal to all Christians. Uh, the, the, The Christian experience is knowing Jesus Christ and to be found in him. And that's where we get our righteousness. I mentioned during the first sermon on Philippians 3 uh, that it might sound interesting to examine Paul's past, which we did, and his present, which we did, but to leave missing his future. And I mentioned briefly that we would get to that in the next chunk of text. Well, that's where we are this morning. Paul's future expectations are gloriously revealed for us in this text. And they shed a little bit of light on the previous verses as well. One note. Uh, Today's text, specifically verse 13. So if you want to look back at that. Brothers, I do not consider that I've made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on towards the goal. Uh, That verse is frequently used as sort of a blanket statement to refer to whatever life circumstance you're going through at the time. Right? Uh, you shouldn't let your past weigh you down. Hakuna Matata. Uh, we should go forward towards better things and brighter things and, and bigger things. Forget what's behind. Set goals and objectives and press on to establish and accomplish those goals. 
While that may be a fine message in some senses, it is not what Paul has in mind here. I want to make clear from the outset, when Paul speaks of the goal, the prize, what is ahead, he is speaking of a very specific thing. Hopefully you've determined what it is already. He's speaking of the resurrection from the dead. His resurrection from the dead. So, the, the, the consummation of his knowledge of Christ. Remember, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection. Right? So, the, the, the fullness, the completion, the perfection of that knowledge of Christ happens at the resurrection. So, I understand to be synonymous. The goal, the prize of the upward call, uh, the thing that he is wanting to obtain, being made perfect, making this thing his own, what lies ahead. Uh, what was mentioned in the previous text, the power of Christ's resurrection, and what will be mentioned at the end of the chapter. Our bodies being transformed to be like his glorious body. All these things are the same. It's the resurrection. That transformation of our bodies to be like his body. That's what Paul is discussing here. Physical, bodily resurrection. So this morning, I want to divide our treatment of this text into two headings. One, Paul's assessment of his past and present. Okay, so Paul's assessment of his past and present. We'll spend a brief amount of time on that point. And then our focus this morning, point two, heading two, Paul's enthusiasm and effort concerning his future. Okay, so Paul's assessment of his past and present, and then Paul's enthusiasm and effort concerning his future. So first, his past, his present. Let's look back at our text here, verse 12. Not that I have already obtained this, the resurrection for the dead, from the dead, or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own. So let's start with the opening words of this text. Uh, not that I have already obtained this. Now, the not that sort of gives us a, an idea that, okay, we're, we're not going to a brand new thought here. Uh, what's written here is connected to what came before, right? So uh, I, I want to know Christ. I want to know the power of his resurrection, the fellowship of his sufferings. I, I want to be like him in his death so that I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Not that I've already obtained it. So you see, it's, it's, it's flowing right out of the, the previous text. This isn't a, a new section or a new thought. Now, what has he not obtained? Well, it's clear. The thing that he just said he wants to attain in the previous verse, the resurrection. So that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection of the dead, not that I've already obtained it. Not that I'm already perfect. Uh, so uh, perfect here, don't understand that in terms of justification, righteousness, moral perfection. We should understand this in terms of completion, wholeness, fullness, uh, like I said, the, the end of that knowledge of Christ that he discussed in the previous text. So, does he know Christ now? Does Paul, at the time of writing, have a real knowledge of Jesus? Certainly. Do you have a real knowledge of Jesus Christ right now? Well, of course, if you're a Christian. But there's a fullness that you lack. Right? There, there, there's a face-to-face -face that has not been realized yet. That's what Paul is referring to here with perfection, completeness. One commentator said it this way, the goal here is the eschatological, so end times, consummation of that which is already his in Christ. Right, so Paul possesses, 
has Christ, his righteousness, a knowledge of him. But there's a completion, a perfection that he still lacks. We also see a connection with the previous text when Paul says that he's forgetting what's behind. Right? I'm forgetting what's behind me. What does he mean there? Well, he, he does that very thing in the previous text. Right? He, he looks back on this list of past attainments and accomplishments and, and this pedigree that he has in Judaism. And what does he say of it? Rubbish. Garbage. Loss. Not just unhelpful, harmful. It's lost to me. He's forgetting the things that are in his past. He's looking at things that he once found security in. He once found a home for his hope in these things. And he's saying, no longer. I'm forgetting those things. Forgetting what's behind, looking forward to what's ahead. Now, when most people say that, I want to forget what's behind me. They typically mean bad things. Right? I want to forget these bad things in my past, these negative things in my past. I don't want any negative energy. I don't want to forget all that stuff. Uh, but Paul here is looking at things that people would look at and call good. The things that used to get him uh, some capital in the Judaistic world. And he's looking at those things and saying, forget it. Forgotten. Good things, bad things. Bottom line, we don't look for security and safety in our past. Uh, if there is a past event that we look for security in, it's the cross of Christ and his resurrection. Uh, but in terms of our past, I'm not looking for safety there. I'm not looking for security there. We're future-oriented. When you become a Christian, your gaze should be forward, not backward. We're looking at Christ and the promises that he's made for future grace in our lives. I think of the song that we're going to sing later this morning. It was finished upon that cross. Death is dead. Christ is risen. It was finished upon the cross. Finished. Done. So now what? Onward to eternal glory. To my Savior and my God. That should be our attitudes as Christians. Onward. Forward. Marching forward. You realize there are multiple tenses in which your salvation occurs. Right? We often speak of salvation, of being saved as a past event. Right? Uh, I was saved. Something that happened in the past. Or, I have been saved. That's actually the present perfect tense. It means that I'm standing in the present, looking at a thing that is now complete. It's done. I have been saved. The Bible doesn't always speak of salvation in that way. In fact, it often speaks of salvation as a future event. Right? Romans 5 says this, Having been justified by his blood, we will be saved from wrath through him. So, having been justified, we will be saved. Realize there's an element of your salvation that still awaits you. An ultimate, final salvation, deliverance from the wrath of God is still in front of you. There's also an ongoing, present aspect to your salvation. 1 Corinthians 1, Paul says, The message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. We are being saved. So you realize there are tenses here. Is it right to say, 
I was saved when I was 16 years old. Sure. But it's wrong to neglect the present and future aspects of that salvation. Uh, The present sanctification of the Lord's work in your life. Uh, The future deliverance from God's wrath that we have to look forward to. Much like the Israelites on the eve of that final plague, right? Like them, the lamb for us has already been slaughtered. Like them, the blood has been applied. Unlike them, however, we have not sat there and seen God's wrath falling on, all, on those all around us, and yet we are spared. We don't know that yet, but we will. Because there's an element of our salvation that is yet to come. So, let's discuss that future salvation. That's the, 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 the emphasis that Paul gives us in this text is what's in front of us, what's before us. So, heading to, that's where we'll spend most of our time, Paul's enthusiasm and effort concerning his future. Paul's enthusiasm and effort concerning his future. So, what is this future? Well, I've mentioned it's the resurrection. What do I mean by the resurrection? Let me just give you some basic truths about what I mean when I say the resurrection. I mean the physical, bodily resurrection of all saints. The physical, bodily resurrection. Paul makes clear in his letters that to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. That's true. To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. Christians that have already gone before us and have passed away, where are they? Well, they're with the Lord. They're with Christ. Where are their bodies? Their physical bodies. They're still here. Right? Maybe in the ground. Maybe in an urn. Right? Maybe like William Tyndale, I think it was, whose ashes were released into a river to be carried far away. Uh, Maybe like Ignatius of Antioch who was eaten by lions in the Roman Colosseum. Regardless of how we die, our bodies are still here. But one day, one day, spirit, soul, will be reunited with body. What is that? That's resurrection. Right? That's where uh, the, the body and the spirit are reunited The body is resurrected and glorified, actual physical body glorified, and that's how we will spend eternity, with glorified, resurrected bodies. And if Christ delays his coming long enough, each of us will find ourselves in that state. We will have died, our bodies will be here, but with other saints that have gone before us, we will be in paradise with the Lord asking, how long? How long? Right? That's what saints who are sleeping, who are resting in hope of a glorious resurrection, that's what they're doing right now. They're longing for the day of the resurrection. Creation itself groans as it longs to see the sons and daughters of God resurrected and glorified. Because it's the culmination, the completion of this grand story that we see played out in all of Scripture. And it's the completion of that knowledge of Christ that Paul talked about. That I may know him and the power of his resurrection. The final resurrection is the end of all suffering and the revelation of all glory and fullness 
of the knowledge of Jesus Christ. We will know face to face in that day. It's important to emphasize here the physical nature of the resurrection. Because it's actually a doctrinal point that's challenged in a lot of circles. Why do we believe that the resurrection is a physical resurrection? A bodily resurrection? uh, That will actually happen physically in space and time? It's not just some ethereal, spiritual, abstract event. Well, because of Jesus' resurrection. Right? We look at the resurrection of our Lord and we say, oh, that's how our resurrection is going to be. And how was Jesus raised? Physically. Bodily. His disciples even doubted this, you remember. They thought he was a ghost or a spirit. So what did he do? He ate food. Right, to show them, I'm not a ghost, I'm not a spirit. I, I, I'm a resurrected body, scars and all. I've got hands and a mouth and a stomach. It, it's me. Just as you knew me, but resurrected, glorified. This ought to be a great hope for you, Christian. The fact that the resurrection is a physical, bodily resurrection. But I fear it's something that we don't give a lot of thought to. Christian brother, Christian sister, you realize your guaranteed future is a body free from cancer, free from disease, free from pain, free from deficiencies, and it will be this very body. You realize that? Like these eyes, the eyes that you're looking at me with right now, those very eyes will see the Lord in his glory. Uh, Look at your hands. These very hands will touch Jesus. That should encourage you. It is this very body that will be raised up and resurrected and glorified, and you will enjoy eternal pleasures in a new glorified heaven and a new glorified earth with this very body. The resurrection is not just a hope for sickly saints or elderly saints or saints with terminal illness, though it is and ought to be all those things. The bodily resurrection is the glorious, blessed hope for each and every one of God's people. Every one of us ought to be encouraged and spurred on to greater love and obedience in our Christian walk because of the fact that we are going to be resurrected one day. Every living saint ought to be looking for, longing for, reaching for, striving for, hoping in the coming resurrection of our bodies. Do you feel the effects of age wearing your body down? Well, there's a future resurrection awaiting you. This body is going to decay. Even those of you who are young, who don't even know what I'm talking about right now. I woke up this morning and my back hurt. I'm in my 30s. Those of you who are like 15, you're like, what are you talking about? Man, it's coming. I'm telling you. There's a resurrection awaiting you. Are you weary of your sin? You get sick of the constant gravitational pull downward towards this world and its lusts. There's a resurrection awaiting you. Be the end of all that. Uh, Does the prospect of death cause you panic? You frightened at the prospect of your death 
the inevitability of it. Brother, sister, there is a future resurrection awaiting you. And it's something about which we should be enthusiastic and hopeful. Uh, we, We should talk of it and think of it often. It should be our blessed hope. Well, how are, we res- how are we to respond to this coming glory? What are we to do now? Uh, how does Paul respond? What, what does he do? Well, if there's one emphasis in this text, it's that very thing. He's pressing on. He's striving, straining, reaching, trying to attain that resurrection however he can. He's actively pursuing now that future reality, right? Actually, when Paul says that he's pressing on towards the goal, towards the prize of this upward call, the language that he uses is reminiscent of sort of ancient athletic events. This idea of of running and straining and reaching for a goal, a prize. Uh, The original hearers would have heard that and there would have been a lot of overlap between ancient games and competitions and races and those sorts of things. A modern equivalent for us would be like Olympic athletes. So let's think on that. What does it take to be an Olympic athlete? Right, so these people from a young age will be carefully attuned to the food that they eat, each exercise that they perform, they're stretching, lifting, conditioning, uh, I was looking up some resources on this. They actually even will uh, do a DNA test now. And they'll have people that will study their genetic traits or proclivities towards certain uh, health or dietary needs. They have teams of people whose full-time job it is to be attuned to that athlete's schedule and optimize each day of training for maximum efficiency. And their lives are really dominated by one desire. One object, and what is that object? The gold medal. I want it. Hey, we're going out tonight. Nope, training. Hey, do you want to come and do this? Nope, sorry, training. Hey, we're going to go eat pizza. Okay, I'll bring my own food. You know, so it's like every part of their lives are affected by what? This desire. This radical obsession with this object, this goal, this prize. For them, it's the gold medal. That's the sort of imagery Paul is trying to evoke. Uh, Think of like a a professional athlete. Like how much time in a week does LeBron James spend training? Who knows? How much time does he spend thinking about basketball? I'd hate to guess. Uh, That's the sort of devotion. Uh, That's the sort of obsession that Paul is reflecting here. But his prize is not a gold medal or or a trophy. Those will rust away and end up on a dump heap. His goal is an eternal resurrection. That's what he wants to reach. Same fervor, same obsession. That's where he's going. That's where he's headed. Now, there are a couple of notable shortcomings in this analogy. First, uh, for the Olympic athlete, let's say, uh, they're in a competition. There's one gold medal, and it's awarded to one competitor. Not so for us. I'm not in competition with you all to reach the resurrection. We're helping each other reach the resurrection. Right? So it's a race where everybody's grabbing hold of each other and saying, come on, let's go. Oh, we got one falling behind. Let's go back and get him. We're a team. We want anyone and everyone to reach the prize. 
whosoever will may come. We beg people to come and join us and get this prize with us. Our enemies are not the, the fellow competitors, the fellow runners. Our enemies are the obstacles that lay before us, whether within or without. But we want to we overcome those together. Second shortcoming. The elite athlete, the Olympian, his training, his striving is exclusive. He has to say no to these other things that he might do so that he can do this, so that he can train. Not so with us. We strive and focus and, and, and work for, to, to attain, we hope to, to reach the resurrection while we do everything else. Right? So instead of saying no to responsibility so that we can do this thing, we are striving and training and working while we do all the other things in our lives. So you're working at a job. You're driving in your car. You're in the shower. You're spending time with your family. You're sitting in a church service. And all these things, while all these things are going on, we are to be focused on Christ Future glory, resurrection. I want to attain that goal. I want to know Jesus Christ. I want to know the power of his resurrection. While we're doing all these other things, whether we're eating or drinking or whatsoever we are doing, we are doing all so that God would be glorified and that we would enjoy the benefits of that glory in a resurrection. So let me say to you, imitate Paul here. Press, strive, labor, work, push, lift drooping hands, strengthen weak knees. You, you look at maybe the, the past several weeks or months or even years of your Christian experience and perhaps they're uh, characterized by apathy and coldness and deadness. Stand up, go, come on, let's move. There's a resurrection in front of us and we've got to get there. Let's go, let's move. We will fall, but we've got to get back up again. We'll trip. We'll stumble. But don't worry, there's someone next to you that wants to pick you up and help you get to the finish line. Help you reach that resurrection. So Christians are always looking forward. We are future-oriented. We're thinking of a day that is still in front of us. Uh, like a, a soldier that's overseas got a wife and kids back home keeps a picture of him he's looking at him looking at that picture thinking about him all the time longing hoping counting down the days till he gets to be reunited with him till he gets to go home that's how we ought to think of our home of our lord we ought to think of him often enjoy his presence with us now by the holy spirit but long to see him face to face Brothers, sisters, forget what's behind. Strive for the goal and look to the future. Now, the future can be a, a frightful prospect for us. Specifically because of death. Right? Because in order to be resurrected, you've got to die. And that's frightening. So a lot of times we can look at the future and look at the end of our lives with panic, with dread. But Hebrews tells us, that Christ took on flesh and blood, quote, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, 
and deliver those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. So Christ took on flesh and blood to deliver those who, because of their fear of death, were in lifelong bondage. So the fear of death is like a slave master, and Christ came to set us free from that slavery. Not just the slavery of death, but the slavery of the fear of death. Christ doesn't want us to be frightened at the prospect of death anymore. Christ came to set us free from that, and he tells us, fear of death was your slave master, I have delivered you. One example of this sort of courage, I actually mentioned him earlier, uh, was Ignatius of Antioch. So we're talking like early 100s here. He was a Christian bishop. He was imprisoned for his faith and sent to Rome to await his execution. And he wrote a letter while he was being detained to the Christians in Rome. And what does he ask them in this letter? He asks them not to intervene on his behalf. Not to try to get him out of prison. Don't appeal on my behalf for deliverance. I want you, I'm requesting to you, please allow me to be martyred. Uh, Michelle and I actually just returned from Rome a couple days ago. And uh, I got to stand in the Roman Colosseum, which is where Ignatius was fed to wild beasts. They would starve these animals for days before these big gladiatorial games or these sorts of exhibitions so that the animals would be crazed with hunger. So those are the animals that were unleashed on Ignatius because of his Christian faith. And I had the opportunity while I was there to sort of get Michelle close to me and read a passage from Ignatius' letter to the Romans. I want to share it with you here. Ignatius writes, I pray you, do not seek to confer any greater favor upon me than that I may be sacrificed to God while my altar is still prepared. Only request on my behalf inward and outward strength, that I may not be merely called a Christian, but truly may be found to be one indeed. I shall willingly die for my God. Allow me to become food for wild beasts, through whose instrumentality it will be granted me to attain to God. For I am God's grain, ground by the teeth of wild beasts, that I may be found to be the pure bread of Christ. Let fire and cross, let crowds and wild beasts, let tearings and breakings and dislocations of my bones, let cutting off of my members, let shatterings of my whole body, let all the dreadful torments of the devil come upon me. Only let me attain to Jesus Christ. You hear our text there? Only let me gain Christ, obtain Christ, attain to Jesus Christ. Come all the dreadful torments of the devil upon us, Christ will not abandon his people to the grave. That should be hope for us, and it should cause us to no longer cower in the face of death. Like our faithful brother here, who was torn to peace in front of the crowds by wild beasts, but he did so with courage. That courage, that same courage, ought to be ours as well when we consider the prospect of our own death. Why? Because there is an inevitable resurrection. We will die. You will die. But you will be raised. 
you will be resurrected gloriously and you will enjoy the fruits of a new earth with a resurrected, glorified body. A few points of application here uh, as I close. First, uh, this text should not cause you to doubt your standing with God. So, so if you read this text, uh, sort of a, an initial reading, it can seem like Paul is telling us that our future depends primarily on our works. You better be working. You better be striving, pushing. And if you don't push hard enough, not going to make it. Should have sweated more. Sorry. However, that overlooks a key and glorious statement in this text. Look back at the text with me. Paul says, verse 12, Not that I have already obtained this, not that I'm already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Uh, Johnny Harris in his equip class this morning actually mentioned uh, the words that are used in this text. That word obtained or attained is a word lambano, means to to grab, uh, to, to take hold of. But when he says, I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own, he uses a different word in those two instances. Similar, kata lambano. Kata means against. Against, like taking against something. It has a note of hostility or aggression to it. So think, obtain, to, to receive. But when he says, I press on to make it my own, that's aggressive. Take, grasp, lay hold of, take, like wrestle out of something's grasp and have it as my own. Because, same word, that's what Christ has done to me. Christ has aggressively laid hold of me. Christ has, has decisively taken me, seized me. That's safety. That's not doubt. That's assurance. That's comfort. And Paul can write this while he's sitting in a tiny prison cell and glory over the fact that Christ has made me his own. Even though death may be coming my way. He's not doubting in this passage. I mean, do you think Paul is uncertain here? Do you think Paul, by reading this text, do you think he's panicked that his work won't be enough? Or is he striving, reaching for the resurrection, doing whatever he can to get there precisely because Christ has already decisively seized him? He's emphasizing the fact that he has not obtained the resurrection yet, not that he's uncertain of it. This should be a passage that gives us assurance and not doubt. It's actually reminiscent of the, of the verse in chapter 2 that we looked at uh, a couple months ago. You remember where Paul tells them to work out your own salvation with fear and trembling? For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Similar thing happening here. We work only because God is at work within us. And similarly, we press on, we strive to grab hold of the resurrection precisely because, only because 
Christ has already laid hold of us. And who will snatch us out of his hand? Finally, let me just encourage you. Look forward to the resurrection. Look forward to your resurrection. Anticipate it. Eagerly expect it. Make it your hope. This can be difficult for us because eternity is just an unfamiliar prospect for us. I don't know if you ever have those moments where you give a few focused thought to the reality of eternity. It can be unsettling. Even if you know that it's a good and blissful eternity that awaits you, it can still be frightful to think of a, a, an ongoing, continuing succession of moments that never, ever ends. You don't go to sleep at the end of the day. Right? We're used to birth and death, youth and old age, day and night, waking and sleeping. So the prospect of an eternal day can be strange to us. Because our way of existing seems natural. But I want to tell you, it's not. Birth and death, that's not natural. It's not the way we were created. Sin, death, sickness, darkness, these things are intrusions upon our existence. They're not natural. They're not how our parents were created. Adam and Eve were created as immortal beings. And then sin intruded. So, I want to tell you, there's nothing more natural. There's nothing more right for you as a human being created in the image of God than to live forever. Than to enjoy the benefits of eternal day. So it's a natural thing for a human being to do is to live forever. So there's no need to be apprehensive or fearful of your resurrection state, of your eternal state. There's every reason to be excited about it exuberant about it. Uh, one other thing that hinders our eagerness for the resurrection is we often overestimate how good we have it here. And we underestimate how good we'll have it there. Right? We, we overestimate how good this life is. Because there are wonderful, beautiful, common graces that attend to this life. Sunrises, Family, friendships, delicious food, and children. I hold my children often and I just weep for gratitude. What a wonderful gift. But do not be deceived. This world is a cruel place. When we get there, we'll look back and say, how did we ever survive that? Only by Christ's grace could we have made it through that. Every good thing you have will one day be taken from you. You realize that? Like I got a new home this year. So grateful for it. One day it'll be a dump. One day it'll be torn down. It'll be falling in. It'll be in disrepair. Just let time keep ticking long enough. Sin is a universal acid. Death, decay, disease, they plague our existence here. So, do not overestimate how good this life is in comparison to the resurrection. In comparison to the eternal state. Anything you lose here, you will gain a hundredfold in the resurrection. But without a resurrection, it's just loss. 
and there's every reason for panic. Uh, I want to close with a, a, a little bit of a lengthy passage from the Chronicles of Narnia. Uh, this is from the last book in the series, The Last Battle. Uh, this passage is pretty close to the end of the book, so if you haven't finished yet and you're reading them, you might want to plug your ears. This is the end of all things. So after all the characters over the seven books have had all their numerous adventures and the beautiful, magical, wonderful land of Narnia, final judgment has taken place now. Narnia has been destroyed and made new again into a new Narnia, what they will call the real Narnia. One of the characters says, quote, Listen, Peter, when Aslan said that you could never go back to Narnia, he meant the Narnia you were thinking of. But that was not the real Narnia. That Narnia had a beginning and an end. It was only a shadow or a copy of the real Narnia, which will always be here. You need not mourn over Narnia. All of the old Narnia that mattered, all the dear creatures from that world, have been drawn into the real Narnia. And of course, the new is different from the old. As different as the real thing is from a shadow. Or as different as waking life is from a dream. And then it was the unicorn who summed up what everyone was feeling. He stamped his feet on the ground and cried out, I have come home at last. This is my real country. I belong here. This is the land that I have been looking for all my life, though I never knew it until now. The very reason why we loved the old Narnia is that it sometimes looked a little bit like this one. Come, everyone, further up and further in. And then Aslan, the great lion, said to them, The school year is over. The holidays have begun. The dream is ended. This is the morning. And as he spoke, Aslan no longer looked to them like a lion. But the things that began to happen after that were so great and so beautiful that I cannot write them. And for us, this is the end of all the stories. And we can most truly say that they all lived happily ever after. But for them, it was only the beginning of the real story. All their life in this world and all their adventures in Narnia had only been the cover and the title page. Now at last, they were beginning chapter one of the grand story, which no one on earth has ever read, but which goes on forever, and in which every chapter we read is better than the one before. This is what awaits you, Christian. Only better. A Christian can always say, the best is yet to come. What is in front of me is better than what is before. Even when we get there, and this was something that Johnny referred to in the, in the class this morning as well. Or maybe it was Scott. Our joy, our capacity for joy, will ever rise. So our joy will be full, and yet it will always increase. Our joy will always be full, and yet our capacity for joy will continually increase such that our joy ever full will ever continue to rise. This is what awaits you. Something like that, at least. Probably something better. So fix your gaze on the coming resurrection. Want it. Long for it. Let the fact that you have a resurrection awaiting you inform the decisions you make in the day. Keep your gaze there. 
Do not be entangled in the affairs of this life such that you rarely think on your certain future. Instead, strive, reach, long, labor in hope of a glorious resurrection. Let it be so. Let's pray. God, our attention is so divided and so fickle. There's so much in this world that grabs for our attention, and we fall prey to it all the time. Uh, But Lord, please help us to be a people that has a serious, solemn, exuberant view of what is to come. God, let the resurrection be grand in our vision. Let it take up a lot of space on our horizons. God, please do this by your Spirit's power. Change our hearts, renew our minds such that we are a people that loves to think on our resurrection. Do this in Christ's name. Amen.